Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Wednesday the 15th of February 2023. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community Get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers, and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. And right now, we are going to zoom across 19 time zones to UC Berkeley in California to get the very latest on AI, SETI research, and the Breakthrough Listen project with a brilliant scientist, Dr. Vishal Gaja. Hello, Vishal. Hello, Brandon. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with an amazing researcher and astrophysicist, Dr. Vishal Gaja who is developing novel AI algorithms to help solve the most pressing questions in modern-day astrophysics. He is best known for discovering the fast radio burst, FRB, at the highest radio frequency, and is also best known for his SETI work, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligences, with the Breakthrough Listen Project. Thanks for speaking with us today, Vishal. Thanks for having me, Brandon, and I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Excellent. So before we talk about your research, would you like to tell us where you grew up, please, Vishal, and tell us how you first became interested in science and space? Sure. Thank you for that question. I would love to kind of talk about sort of my background. So I come from a a very small town in India called Botad, where I initially did my schooling. And once I was past the schooling, I did my college close to my hometown in a city named Bhavnagar. I graduated in electronics and communication engineering. In India, it is a kind of a trend. Like you typically first choose to do engineering and then you decide if you want to kind of do something else in life. But I always had passion for astronomy. Even during my kind of school year days, I knew that I wanted to do something in astronomy. It's just that, that I didn't have that many kind of resources and that that much exposure to know a, that there could be a career as well in astronomy. So it took me a while. And when I was graduating from my college, I learned that one can actually pursue a PhD and become an astronomer or become a, a scientist. 
that really motivated me and I was very passionate to pursue that as my career. And after I graduated, I went to Pune to do an integrated PhD. An integrated PhD is a combination of a master degree in science along with the PhD. And I joined the prestigious Tata Institute of Fundamental Research Center in Pune. It's one of the topmost university in India. And I did my PhD in astrophysics, primarily working on these fascinating objects called pulsars. Pulsars are some of the most fascinating objects in the universe. Uh, they are neutron stars. They are rotating neutron stars. So I studied them in detail to understand what are the ways by which pulsars emit radio waves. Yeah, and that's my background. Excellent. Okay. So after that journey, you know, and completing your PhD, would you like to tell us about your first postdoc position where you worked at Xinjiang Astronomical Observatory in China for a couple of years? And it must have been quite an adventure working on new projects, new instruments in a new country. Would you like to tell us about your time up there in the far northwest of China? Uh, sure. Yeah, so Xinjiang Observatory was quite an isolated place, but it's an excellent pulsar group. They are doing quite a good work in understanding the radio emission mechanism of pulsars. So that got me motivated because that's what my PhD thesis was based on. And uh, there was a clear synergy in terms of what I was doing for my thesis in the kind of work that they are interested in. Moreover, they were actually already, they are building this one of the world's largest steerable radio telescope. So right now we have the Green Bank Radio Telescope in West Virginia in the U.S. But the observatory where I did my first postdoc, they are in fact building a world's next largest radio telescope, which is going to be even larger than the GBT. So I was part of the team to basically first uh, chart out the science plan for these for, for this upcoming radio telescope. It is called the QTT. And there are some delays due to COVID and other things, funding coming a little bit short and that. That's why the program got a bit delayed, but I'm hoping that the telescope will soon start its construction and we'll have one of the most sort of fascinating radio telescope at our disposal. So yeah, I had a very interesting collaboration and I had a very fruitful time for my first postdoc in China, yes. Fantastic. What a wonderful start to your career. Now, just a quick instrumental follow-up question, Vishal. I've read a few of your papers and I understand a little bit of the abstracts, but I see you've used data from the Chinese fast radio telescope for some of your SETI and your FRB research. Um, did you get to visit the 500-metre aperture spherical radio telescope while you were in China? And what about Arecibo? You've used that beautiful instrument in your research. Were you also dismayed when it collapsed? Uh, yeah. So I, when I was in China, unfortunately, at that time, I didn't get didn't get chance to meet uh, or visit the FAST telescope. I visited the FAST telescope when I was in Berkeley because I continued to work with my collaborators in China. In, in fact, we expanded our collaboration so I work with not just the Xinjiang Radio Astronomy Observatory, but I also work with the group in Beijing at the National Radio Astronomical Observatory. And over there, we've been working together, especially to facilitate different kinds of SETI experiment for FAST. So let me give you a little bit of background on that topic. So SETI 
is something that I was always passionate about. I was always interested in this question about are we alone in the universe? But that is very hard to pursue as a career in astronomy because the funding is a bit short. There is not too many resources through which you can get funding to actually pursue that as your career. So obviously I didn't choose that as my primary career. But I was always interested in doing something with SETI. So even during my PhD period, I had some SETI experience. I, we did conduct some preliminary SETI observations with the GMRT telescope where I did my PhD. And that's what got me into my postdoc at UC Berkeley. So when I was working at UC Berkeley, I also had a collaboration with the FAST telescope. So FAST telescope has a number of science, actually it has five main science projects that it primarily wants to focus on for most of its research. And one of those main area of the research the FAST telescope wants to focus on is SETI, which is very, very exciting for somebody uh, like me who is just coming up uh, as, a, as a young researcher in this area, that we have this massive telescope at our disposal. This is a 500 meter telescope. It's the most sensitive single dish radio telescope that human has ever built. It has such a powerful sensitivity that you can get the level of sensitivity that you have never, ever achieved in the field of SETI. For example, in SETI, typically we try to look for signals which are extreme, needs to be extremely bright. So your cell phone towers, for example, or the air traffic radar kind of signal, although they do travel in space, they are too weak to be detected even from our closest neighbor if we use the existing other infrastructure. But for example, if you use a telescope like FAST, and if you stare at our nearby stars long enough, you have the sensitivity to detect. This is just fascinating to even think about. We can detect mobile kinds of transmission, not an individual cell phone level, but a cumulative. So there are all these mobile phone towers which are transmitting. So cumulatively, if you add all the powers together, they produce something like 10 to the power 10 volts of power. So we, with FAST, can actually detect that from our nearest neighbor. This oh. has never happened in SETI. SETI has always been trying to search for signals which are power 10 to the power 13, 10 to the power 15, 16 volts. So that's like super high power transmitter, which we not normally, we don't routinely use those kind of transmission. Uh, but 10 to the power 10 is pretty common, and we use that all the time. So if we are able to detect a mobile kinds of transmission power from our nearest neighbor, that really helps us to push this limit of are we really alone in the universe? Because this is, remember in SETI, our goal is to find technologically advanced civilization, technologically advanced life. So the idea is that, that if there is intelligent life out there, they might be also have similar level technology as we have, even more, maybe more advanced. And for them, these kind of transmission would be pretty common. Although they may not be intentionally transmitting for our benefit, they may be just using it for their own application, but that radio waves also leaks into space. And FAST is a telescope through which we can detect it. So that was a very fascinating thing for me. Arecibo had the similar sensitivity, although 1.6 times less sensitive than fast, but it remained one of the most sensitive telescopes for many, many, many decades. And it was really, really unfortunate to see that obviously it has, it ran a good course, it had a good run, it, it produced a fascinating science, 
but obviously all as all radio telescope comes to an end there is a there, there is a cost of its infrastructure decaying and eventually you can't really match that so the, so the cost of really keeping the Arecibo running was too high so they could not really fund it further and eventually due to all that it had to be shut down and then the telescope collapsed uh, in, it was very sad moment to really see the telescope being uh, uh, being, being down like that but that that doesn't stop the science i hope that there will be other future telescopes we we have changed our approach in way in the way we do science so obviously fast is a fascinating single dish telescope but with the new advancement of computers we don't necessarily need to build single big dishes we can build small antennas and place them far away and we can mimic or simulate a large dish so in a way we can achieve the similar level of sensitivity by a fraction of the cost because of this new advancement in computing that we have but wow. to to basically get to your question yes losing arecibo was was unfortunate yeah. oh that's amazing yes arecibo certainly had a special place in everyone's heart but um as you mentioned we have moved on and We've got things like FAST, and we might even talk a little bit about the SKA project a bit later, but let's just go back and talk about your move to UC Berkeley in the United States, and you've had almost a decade of experience working with the Breakthrough Listen project, and you've been working to, as you've described, to very cleverly push the envelope to look for signs of techno signatures by using dozens of these radio observatories around the world and using very amazing software solutions. Could you tell our listeners a couple of things? First of all, what is Breakthrough Listen? What is that project? And what are techno signatures? And how do you, Vishal, how do you in particular, how do you search for techno-signatures? Right. So we have this notion that we are definitely not alone in the universe. There is definitely life out there because the numbers just don't add up. If you look at the total number of stars in the Milky Way, you look at the total number of sun-like stars, you look at the total number of sort of exoplanets that we have found and based on it what we have determined to be the rate of exoplanet to exist in the universe that's a staggering number so yeah. it is highly unlikely that we are alone there must be other intelligent mother other life out there and if there's other life out there there is no reason to believe that that life is primitive if there is sufficient number of them there is a sufficient chance that that might uh, live up to the level of becoming more technologically advanced yep. now breakthrough listen is humanity's best effort in searching for these technologically advanced life, extraterrestrial life in the universe. So, so far in the field of SETI, we've been trying to do the same thing. We've been trying to search nearby stars, although we have only been able to search like a few thousand stars and our sensitivity limits were not so promising. So Breakthrough Listen actually is an endeavor to conduct some one of the most comprehensive and one of the most detailed search for signs of technologically advanced life, which in short terms we call technosignature. So yep. similar to like astrobiologists, when they search for these biosignatures, 
we search for evidence of technology and that's why we call it techno signature now there are various different types of techno signature but breakthrough listen particularly focuses on electromagnetic spectrum searching for entire electromagnetic spectrum as much as possible to search for signs of technologically advanced life so there are number of radio telescopes that work with the program so breakthrough listen is a 10 year and hopefully may get extended for 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 more it's a 100 million dollar funded project to run for 10 years we have a very small team we don't have hundreds of people who are working directly but we have more than a few hundred collaborators who work with us across the globe uh, and these are all the astronomers all the students and researchers who are passionate about this question of are we alone in the universe so breakthrough listen provides a platform for them as well to really get into this field to really understand what they can contribute and really expand the field beyond the seti has ever been able to achieve so breakthrough has really broken barriers in terms of achieving what seti has ever been done before as a part of the breakthrough listen team i am a project scientist and my job is to collaborate with our international collaborators so breakthrough listen has actually purchased time on radio telescopes so we use the world's current largest single dish stereable radio telescope the green belt telescope so we have about 20% of the time allocated to for doing seti on that telescope and we have a telescope similar telescope time in australia where you are located a parkes telescope uh, we yep. use something around 25% of the time on that telescope we also have time on optical telescope that we have purchased along with that we have around a dozen other radio observatories where we operate more in a some kind of a commensal fashion or we actually apply for telescope time and we get the telescope time and we operate for a fraction of some time so my job as a part of the team is to collaborate with other these radio observatories which are outside the us collaborate and work with the radio astronomers and engineers and mostly many students many times to enable these unique experiment and every radio telescope that we work with has something unique to offer so one has to find a best science program that is best suited for that radio telescope there are radio telescopes which are so large like for example i work with fast now fast is so sensitive that you can def you can just do something very simple and you will be able to still break grounds but there are radio telescopes which are small tiny we don't have that kind of sensitivity as uh, as fast but they have a large collecting area they can look at a large part of the sky so in that case you have to change your strategy you have to adapt a new ways by which you can you are you are searching so there are there are these kind of calculations that one has to make depending upon which telescope that you work with so this is something that i work with with many of these radio astronomers to enable these special kind of radio observation for these special observatories yes fantastic Thank you. I think the work that you and the, your team are doing—you've taken something that used to be considered science fiction—and breakthrough listen represents some very solid science. Any signs of the well signal yet? <laughs> I in in the SETI community, if you ask a SETI astronomer, and if you if you ask them that, what do they think about the well signal? the wow signal is slightly overrated into um, in our opinion it was not one of the most promising signal 
that we have ever detected. It is certainly interesting, but in SETI, we look for persistency. We look for things which are persistent in sky. Things which just pop and go, we see them many times during the day. There are many examples that I can show you from our data. We've been operating for many telescopes where something similar has shown up and has disappeared. Extraordinary claim require extraordinary evidences. Wow signal was just not there. Uh, it was just one detection. It never really seemed to repeat. Uh, there have been number of observations has happened over the years of the same area of the sky. Uh, even the Ohio telescope, which discovered it, it had two beams on the sky and it was only detected in one of the beam. Although the second beam passed to the same area, it was not. Yep. Which makes me think that it is some, maybe it was some kind of an instrumental artifact or it could be something else that we still have to investigate. Although it, the data is too old now, it is in 1977 that one can really dig into that and find out because we don't have a lot of meta information available to us as much as we collect these days. Uh, so there are limited things that we can do on that particular signal. But as long as it doesn't seem to repeat, the on the priority list of SETI signals, it doesn't really come in a top six, in a top three signal, in my opinion. We have in fact designed this thing called a Rio scale. So a Rio scale is a quantifiable measurement that you can give to any signal uh, that you find in the field of SETI, and that kind of that has a various different criteria uh, of validation. And it goes through various different processes of, of repeated observations, repeated signals. Signal needs to be, be seen by other radio telescopes, by other teams. There's various, you can look it up, the real scale. And if you look at the wow signal, it, the wow signal has a very, very low real scale. Yep. So it doesn't really fit into the criteria of being a genuine signal. That's why if you talk to any SETI astronomers, um, not just me, they might give you the same answer that they don't think that that it was a it was it is certainly overrated as much as what we can say. Exactly. Yep. Thanks, Michelle. It's great to see SETI and Breakthrough Listen becoming part of a well-accepted landscape, and we're moving way beyond the idea that. The question, are we alone, is all about little green men. We've moved so far beyond that. Let's look now at another great mystery. Could we go back and have a quick look at some of your FRB research? You did a lot of great work looking at FRB 121102. And right now we have over 800 FRBs discovered and scores of them are repeating. And FRB 1809-16 seems to pulse every 16.35 days. So we know a lot about FRBs now, but there's still a great mystery. Why was FRB 12.11.02 that you studied so intensely, why was it such a significant FRB? Right. Yes. So fast failure bursts are obviously one of the most fascinating questions in the modern day astrophysics. Uh, we don't know their origin. We don't know where they come from. Although we do have some hints that they are associated with neutron stars. Neutron stars are the most likely contender for being a progenitor of these FRBs. But there are still so many things that we don't know about the emission mechanism, about how these neutron stars are able to generate such a powerful radio emission 
that we are able to detect these billions of light years away. That's fascinating to me. Uh, FRB 12 ever 2 is special among all of it. First and foremost, it was the first FRB that was seen to repeat. So before 12.11.02, we didn't know that FRB repeats, and that gave rise to these 50-odd theories of progenitor models, which were all cataclysmic. Like They all expected the source to be destroyed. At this process, an FRB was expected to be produced. But now you have a source which is producing repeated pulses. And that complicated the entire progenitor model that it is not likely that it is some kind of a cataclysmic event. It has to be something persistent, something that is constantly giving these pulses. Now, it may be possible that there are two different emission mechanisms or two different population of FRBs. Now we know there are many, many FRBs which are repeat. There are more than a few dozens that we have discovered so far. And the one of FRB, as you have correctly pointed out, especially by the CHIME telescope, there are more than 800 FRBs that we have discovered. So it is certainly not true that, that FRBs need to be produced from cataclysmic events. They can be produced by processes which are persistent. And 12 in one two was a special case, as I said, because it was the first FRB that was found to be a repeater. Now, it was also the first FRB that was due to its repetition, people were able to localize where exactly in the sky it is coming from. Now, there was obviously this question that FRBs could be something instrumental, could be something something completely coming from our own local galaxy. I mean, we don't know. Obviously, we the dispersion measure that we were measuring was too high for them to produce from our own galaxy. So there was certainly what extragalactic sources can produce. This was, this was a mystery, like how far away these objects needs to be. So when 12 2 was localized to this dwarf galaxy, that solved at least a few of the mysteries, that they are certainly extragalactic. They are not coming from our own galaxy. They are coming from galaxies which are far away. And 12 2 was found in a galaxy which was 3 billion light years away. That means like right now, the pulses that we are looking at it, they pre were produced at the source around 3 billion years ago. Yep. I mean, 3 billion years ago, there was just single cellular life on Earth. So think about that, that now we point a radio telescope towards 12 2, you detect these pulses, these pulses actually originated at the source where there was just primitive life or single cellular life on Earth. Oh. I mean, just think about that gives me goosebumps. Like that just, that gives you the scale of the universe. And that also gives you the, 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 uh, the idea that the FRBs are so bright that we are able to, de able to detect it. Even they are billions of light years away. Yeah. Now coming to the 12.11.2, when we started understanding that it is localized to a dwarf galaxy, you can pinpoint a radio telescope and then look at it for a significantly longer duration. Right? This was a problem with the other FRBs because they were just one off. So you don't know where to look. You can just, because you can just hope, you can point a telescope and you can hope that it might, there may be some FRB pops up. But 12.11.2 was a case because you knew exactly where it is coming from after we localize it. So you can do a sensitive, deep observations. So when we started working with the Breakthrough Listen, Breakthrough Listen was commissioning it well, at high frequency capabilities. So we had a high frequency receiver at the Green Bank Telescope, and we were commissioning it for our backend. And we thought it would be a very cool case to look at an FRB and see if we are able to detect it, because that would really help us commission our instrument that, yes, our instrument is working fine, is doing great things. And we, we got lucky. 
that this one particular day when we looked at this uh, 12 or 2, it produced many bursts. Um, so in the first paper that we, we wrote, we had something around two dozen bursts. But when a student of mine designed a machine learning algorithm, and when he looked at the same data set that, in, that we initially looked at, he found with the machine learning tool that there were 100 fast radio bursts in the same data uh, that we could not find because they were extremely weak. But machine learning allowed us to look at it in more detail. Now, there is still some bit of significant, although there are, as I said, there are more, I think there are two dozens or more FRBs that have been found to repeat. But 12.11.2 still has a significant is because it has the highest amount of what we call the rotation measure. Now, what is a rotation measure? Rotation measure is a quantity which gives you the idea of what is the electron density surrounding this source and what is the magnetic field. And that is the combination of the magnetic field and the electron density. And this is what we call electromagnetic medium. It's the densest region that we have found for any FRB. So it has the highest amount of rotation measure that we have found for even we have like all 800 FRB, but this is still the highest. And we discovered that. And we wrote a nature paper on that discovery. And being part of the team to, to, to make the discovery was, was really interesting. Yeah. And that's why Sterling 2 holds a special place in my heart. What a great story. I can imagine the excitement in your team. And it sounds like it's a gift that keeps on giving. It must be fantastic to be right in the middle of some amazing research where huge instruments like FAST and GMRT and Greenbank and the VLA and Chime, they're providing petabytes of data daily and with the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, just around the corner. So very soon, we're going to have exabytes of data to deal with on a daily basis. It's crazy. Could you tell us about the challenges that you have with dealing with so much data and how you face those challenges by using machine learning? Right. So, yes, indeed, it is challenging that the modern-day radio telescope are going to produce huge terabytes of data every day. And overall, we can't really keep them around. <laughs> uh, earlier, our strategy was that, that we record the data, uh, we play back the data, and we still do the searches. That worked well where our data were limited to a few uh, hundreds of terabytes a day. Now we are coming into this uh, in this region where, as you correctly pointed out, the new radio telescope coming up online, like square kilometer array. Even the before square kilometer array, there are various pathfinders and precursors of square kilometer array, which we work with, which routinely produce similar amount of data. Uh, for example, the radio telescope we work with is a Meerkat telescope in South Africa, where we have a program to basically run commensally. So we can't really keep record of all the observations. What we do is that as soon as the data comes in, we record for five minutes on half of our machines. And once the five minute is complete, we transfer recording on other half of the machine while the first half of the machine actually goes through this data set. And then it goes to the data set and it searches for these kinds of signals that we are interested in. If it finds something, it only extracts the portion of the data that the signal has been found, and then unfortunately has to throw out the rest of the data. 
And this process that this is what we call the ping pong mode. So the recording gets ping pong between one half of the machines and the other half of the machine. And by this, we can keep tab of all the recording, all the data that we get get into the telescope. So this is just one example. In future, we will we, we, we definitely need to expand on this. We will expand our infrastructure. We will expand on our data recording capabilities. We will be able, hopefully be able to record for a little bit more longer duration of the time and be able to do more kind of signal searches. Now, when we are doing signal searches in real time, there are some challenges to that. When you have data at your hand, you are free to write an algorithm that can take even like longer amount of time than the actual length of the data. So this is what we call a real-time operation. Yep. If you want to design an algorithm search for these special kind of signal that might be coming from advanced, technologically advanced extraterrestrial life, you need to design an algorithm that can work faster. You can't really allow the algorithm to search for five minutes of data. And then if the search takes 10 minutes or 15 minutes, that's not going to work out for us. It can work out on the offline processing, but in the online processing or real-time processing, that cannot work out. So there are definitely these challenges that we deal with. We have to design an algorithm that can work faster. Now, machine learning and artificial intelligence does provide some avenues to process them faster, but there are many challenges on that. Like how do we process these amount of data using GPUs? And like how do we basically combine all of our data across from multiple radio frequencies together, multiple antennas together? There is a finite amount of time it takes to process all that. And once you have these finite amount of time being processed, then you have the data at your hand to do the searches. So there are definitely challenges. Machine learning and advances in the GPUs does allow us to push this envelope. And we are at this point using whatever is the best Uh, available graphical processing units in the market, whatever are the most novel signal searches that are are out there, we do utilize most of these tools. And we are very excited for the future because this is the direction where we would like SETI to go. We would like all the time on the sky, we would like 24-hour SETI so that we don't miss anything. Now, we don't know really where the signals are coming from, right? We, We have absolutely no idea. There are millions of stars in the sky. With the Breakthrough Listen program, we have a plan to search our 1 million nearest star. But these are just the stars that we know of. There may be millions of other stars that are in the background that we can't really see them. So our ideal goal is to look at the entire sky and search for these signals 24-7. That's the best way to push the envelope in field of SETI. And in order to achieve that, you need faster processing, you need real-time processing, and that's where the machine learning and other tools that we've been working on can help us. So we are very excited about this future field that's opening up right now and allowing us these new development that's happening due to mostly due to industry expansion. Like you have more, many industries now coming up. We are allowing these expansion of these machine learning tools, and people are publicly making many of these tools available to a lot of us. So in in radio astronomy community, we have been using machine learning for past five years now. So as I said, for detecting fast radio bursts, also we have used machine learning tools. So machine learning is is becoming now an everyday tool that we earlier it was something, it, it, it used to be an exotic thing. 
nowadays becoming kind of a very regular thing that everybody is uh, everybody's aware of and everybody is familiar with and hopefully we'll have more experts and so that's what i feel very interested that in future we will have more tools and we will have more people who are more familiarized with these tools and that can really help us push the push the envelope unbelievable that is fantastic it sounds like there's an explosion of technologies happening with a corresponding explosion of understanding and some astonishing collaborations happening it sounds very exciting Vichel. now another complication is you have to in your searches make sure there's no extraneous signals getting through what about these new constellations like starlink and low earth satellites are they producing radio traffic which uh, has the potential to interfere with your research most definitely even before the starlink satellites are a major source of interference for radio astronomy and especially for seti think about this we are trying to look for these needles in haystack like when we try to search for this special kind of signal that we think could be produced by advanced technologically advanced life it's a very challenging problem but due to all these satellites coming in we are not just looking for needle in haystack we are looking for a special needle in a haystack of needles uh, because everything that's interference has the potential to be a real signal because the kind of signal that we are trying to search can also mimic the kind of signal that we produce by our own technology yep. so we have to be very careful in our algorithm in our searches our strategy in in order to eliminate as much of interference as possible so adding more satellites is certainly not beneficial to us it's going to create more problems but at some point i think we have to accept the fact that there is something that we can't really control uh, right. we can't really control the human progress we can't really control that we we have a limited number of satellites that's going to expand there is going to be more demand for it as the world is becoming more connected everybody would like to have access to high speed internet and there will be more demands for more satellites more powerful transmitters all that is going to just increase so we have to find novel ways to how do we coexist in this radio traffic environment and for that we have been doing a lot of work we have been trying to write clever algorithm which are trained on millions of these satellite signals which can discriminate what exactly a satellite signal looks like and then if you ever find something that is similar looking to a satellite signal you can isolate them into various different categories this is what we call a clustering classification in, in machine learning so by giving sufficient examples you can train a machine learning classifier to isolate things that are known to us from our prior observation with respect to something that is something that's bit unique which has some slightly different characteristics which doesn't really match with what we are searching for uh, it's a challenging problem but i think we have a way to tackle it so i hope that in future we will hopefully will have a better tools better resources to tackle this problem but to answer your question yes indeed it is a huge challenge for us fantastic and it sounds like there's no challenge that you can't meet head on okay so right now 
it might be a good time to ask how the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your research. We're in the fourth year of it now, and it's still going. And you were over in California for the initial COVID outbreak and the first few years of the pandemic. What are your personal and professional reflections on COVID? Yeah, so COVID was certainly heavily impactful for everybody's personal lives and for many people's professional life as well. Fortunately for us professionally, our team is quite diverse and is well spread. So we were familiar with Zoom uh, even before the pandemic. Like most of our meetings used to happen in Zoom because, as I said, we have team members who are spread across the globe. So as I work with these dozen radio observatories, I work across time zones. So I have meetings at the 6, 4, 5 a.m. in the morning. Sometimes I have meeting at 11 p.m. at night. So yeah, I work around the clock anyway. Yeah. Only professionally, only difference that I would, I think that has impacted is we have little less in-person meetings after pandemic. And even during the pandemic, obviously, we can't really do that. But even after the pandemic, uh, people are now more adapted to work from their own homes. Uh, we have at, at least two to three days where we work from home and the rest of the day we, we come to office and work together. So that has clearly changed the way we operate, but it has not really slowed us down. In fact, that has, it has made us more productive in some sense, because now we, we, we have unlimited sort of restriction in terms of like, we don't really have to think about driving in traffic and like, how do you find parking? Like if you ever been to Berkeley, uh, finding a parking spot in Berkeley is, is, is really a painful thing. So I don't really have to. <laughs> so so in, in that sense, I, I don't have to think about it. I can be at home, be more productive and can be more healthy. You can have more healthy food choices rather than like eating out on every day that you usually have to do if you're going to office. So yeah, there, in some sense, it, it has changed all of our life. Personally, in my personal life, obviously, it has also impacted in many sense. Like we were pregnant at the time of the pandemic and it was good that we were able to spend time together and I was able to help my wife through the pregnancy. Oh, nice. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and still we are looking out for our parents and grandparents and right. taking care of them and trying to keep them safe. Okay. What about outreach? You've done a lot of outreach work and mentoring, and our listeners will easily find your YouTube videos and the presentations that you've been doing. Why is outreach important? What's next for you in outreach and in mentoring the next generation of researchers? Right, yes. I very much into outreach because I feel like that by teaching or by actually doing outreach activity, it allows you to think fundamentally about a problem that you're working on. See, as a scientist, sometimes we get very focused on one issue and we don't think about the big picture, about the impact of the research, about what exactly, you know, looking at a, in a broader perspective. Now, when you go for an outreach event, when you go and talk to students or other college students, they, they usually have very good ideas and they ask very nice questions. And these questions 
let you think critically about your own research. They, they allows you to think in a slightly more broader perspective than being this narrow-minded and being so focused on this one problem that you are tackling. But it, it sort of broadens your mind and gives you this whole idea about like, wow, this is what I'm doing. I mean, when you answer this question, when, 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 when their eyes lit up, when you tell them that, okay, you're searching for this intelligent life in the universe. And when they, when they see this, this interest that okay, this is, there are people who are working on this field that gives me the satisfaction to be in this, in this field, to do this research, to push the envelope of science that we are able to go to school children, we are going to college students, and we can tell them that science is exciting, science is fascinating. And there are these fundamental questions of humanity that we have no answers for. Like we don't know are we are alone in the universe. The universe is very big. When you give them the whole scale of the universe, that the sun you see is just one among the billions of stars that we have in the galaxy alone, how is it possible that we are alone in this in, on this planet? I mean, just think about it. And it's obviously everybody agrees that yes, this is unlikely. And then we have people who are working on this field. We have people who are actually actively searching for other life form. And when we make the discovery, I think that's going to be one of the most profound discovery the human humanity has ever made. It's, it's similar to like finding a, a discovery of fire. You know, like it just changes the whole perspective of, of our life or of our existence on this planet. So for me, it's very easy because my the problem that I work on is so simple in that sense. So it doesn't take a whole lot for me to motivate my audience to, to tell them that what exactly I work on, why is it important? And I thoroughly enjoy that. Fantastic. And it sounds very much like it's a two-way street. It's working both ways. Not only is your audience getting insights, but you're getting insights from your audience. That's a beautiful way of looking at it. Thank you very much. Now, let's bring our listeners up to date with your current research. So would you briefly like to talk us through some details of a particular collaboration or another part of your research that you're working on now that is driving you crazy or astonishingly exciting, or both? <laughs> sure. So I have recently accepted a staff astronomer position at the SETI Institute. So earlier I was working as a postdoc and then later on as a researcher with UC Berkeley. But now I'll be focusing more my research on activities of SETI Institute SETI. Uh, now SETI Institute uh, is sort of separate from Break to Listen Science. Break to Listen come, uh, basically uh, is hosted at, the UC, at UC Berkeley and we work with a number of radio telescopes, but SETI Institute also has their own SETI program. So as a part of the SETI Institute astronomer, I'll be working with the telescope called the Allen Telescope Array, which if you are ever heard of SETI, you probably have seen pictures of the ATA antennas. Uh, these are like small antennas. They are in Northern California. So I will be working closely with the team of astronomers uh, at this telescope to basically design some novel signal searches pulp algorithm. See, there is a problem in SETI, and which is what I'll mostly focus my next leg of research. So far, all the SETI research that has happened so far has searched for this one very particular class of signal. They are called narrowband signal. So yeah. when you look at the electromagnetic radio waves, you can divide the radio waves into number of radio frequencies. So mostly SETI has focused on searching for a very, very narrow signal, signal which 
only occupy a limited part of the radio spectrum. We call them narrowband because so far, we don't know any natural processes to produce signal that only occupy, for example, like a few hertz of electromagnetic spectrum. So if we do detect it, that is a clear evidence that has been produced by some kind of technology because we produce them quite a lot. So that's great. Obviously, this is an ideal thing to search and we should not really give that away. But my hypothesis that what I will focus on is that why do we only focus on just one signal? There are other types of signal. Signal, for example, can have can be broadband, which can have some kind of embedded modulations in them. Signal can be just intrinsically broadband and could be temporarily focused on a very, very small fraction of the second, like FRBs. Fast radio bursts were initially also been considered as a signal from ETI. Obviously, now we know there are hundreds of them, so they are definitely not signals from ETI. But a signals like FRB, but you can have artificially dispersed signals, signals which have some extra dispersion that you can't really explain the nature to produce. So my in my next leg of research, I'm going to search for these completely unexplored types of signal that we have never searched in the past 60 years of setting. Signals which have modulations in them, signals which are broadband and have extra dispersions in them. And for that, I'm designing several machine learning tools to help me search for them. And I'll be using the Allen Telescope Array and other radio telescopes that we work with the SETI Institute to search, conduct these searches. Moreover, I obviously have a position at UC Berkeley, which I continue to work with the Break to Listen program as a project scientist to work with all these different radio telescopes. And we have lots of exciting research going on with other radio telescopes. For example, we work with radio, we, we are trying to simultaneously look from two different radio telescopes, the same part of the sky. And remember, I, I mentioned about the interference, like that's the biggest challenge in SETI. Interference are typically localized to a radio telescope. So when you find interference, you typically don't see it if you look at the radio telescope, which are further away from it. So if you look at from two different telescopes at the same time, the interference might be different, but the signal from ETI or from extraterrestrial intelligence would probably be same at both yep. these telescopes. So yep. you can use this technique to differentiate what is locally produced and what is skybound. And we use these tools. So we, have, we use multiple radio telescopes. This is my program that I'm working with telescope in Europe called LOFAR, where we actually simultaneously look at from multiple radio telescopes and trying to discriminate what is skybound and what is local. So I'm quite excited about all these new future uh, research that I hope that I'll be able to push the boundary in the field of SETI. Fantastic. You must be having so much fun on a daily basis. Thank you, Vishal. Now, before we sign off, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Uh, there are lots of exciting science that in the field of SETI that's going to come up in the next near future. I mean, the first thing which I mentioned is our survey with the Meerkat telescope. I'm quite looking forward to it. We, as I said, we Meerkat telescope, we operate commensally. And we have a survey to complete a 1 million nearby, uh, nearby stars. I hope we'll be able to finish the survey in the next couple of four to five years. And this will be the most sensitive survey of the largest number of stars that we have ever searched. Now think about this, in the field of SETI in the past 60 years, we have never really looked at a million stars. So I'm quite interested in seeing what exactly we find when you look at a million stars. Moreover, at the SETI Institute, we have a program called COSMIC, similar program like Meerkat, but with the VLA. 
So VLA is also conducting its sky surveys, VLAS surveys, and we have we are piggybacking on the similar data that we they are collecting. So that will also going to add to these million of stars. We definitely will have several hundred thousands of stars surveyed with the VLA as well. These are the largest number of stars that we have ever searched. We have never really searched for these main number of stars. Any hypothesis about existence of intelligent life in our solar neighborhood will be truly tested in the next five years. Moreover, I'm quite excited about the science we're doing with FAST. FAST is pushing, as I said, FAST is so sensitive that it, is, it can detect like mobile towers, um, not just one mobile tower, uh, but a collection of mobile towers. It's hard to detect a single mobile tower, but a collection cumulative power of entire population of Earth can be detected across several sort of from our nearby neighbor, if they exist out there. We will be doing the similar surveys from FAST to our nearest neighbor. I think that's just mind boggling. I mean, we, we have never really had that kind of sensitive. We have never really achieved that kind of sensitive. I'd be fascinating to see what we find from that. Uh, I'm very confident that our listeners listening to your presentation here We'll be following your work and your career with SETI and with Breakthrough Listen with great interest. Thank you so much. Well, we have to sign off now. Thank you, Dr. Vishal Gajar. On behalf of all our listeners, and especially from me, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. I hope you get a chance to come out to Australia someday and I can shake your hand and thank you. But thank you especially for your time in your pretty amazing schedule and good luck with your research as a SETI project scientist and nurturing those students at UC Berkeley and with all your next adventures. Thank you so much, Vishal. Thank you, Brandon. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Bye. Bye-bye. And I know a lot of our listeners will like to keep up to date with the latest in Dr. Kajar's SETI research. And you can always see his latest work at gajarvishal.com. That's G-A-J-J-A-R-V-I-S-H-A-L dot com. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. So we'll see you in two weeks when we bring you Ian's March Sky Guide. Radio Wave!